0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Praise Team. Beautiful. Beautiful songs. Beautiful songs of worship today. Thank you for preparing our hearts as we come to the Word of God today. I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Today is our Communion Sunday, and I have never done this before, but today I would like to do a dedicated message on communion and to focus our hearts toward it. And I may even do that next week. We're doing a baptism next week, and so I may even. Come back and do one on focused on baptism, but we'll see where that goes. But Luke chapter 22, I want to read verses 14 to 20. Before I do that, uh, let me just mention a couple things. Let me do the bad news first. By the way, you know, a couple weeks ago with the active shooter that they had in our country here, we want to, we want to again tell you that if we ever have an active shooter here or there's any shots heard, the best thing you can do is to go down on the ground right where you are, right there, and not move around. And leave it in the hands of the security to um, deal with the shooter, to engage the shooter if be. But uh, let's allow our security to do that. That's the safest way to do that. And then they'll evacuate us from the building as soon as it's uh, safe to do that. Let me just remind you to do that. It's the best opportunity you have, and the best safety measures that we can do. And we're going to trust our security team to engage with these shooters if there ever was one here at this church. And thank God there hasn't. But in this day we're living, we know this is more and more a possibility, and so I did want to mention that, okay, that's the bad news, all right, the good news, the good news is, uh, I was going to announce this last week, but I was out of town, it's great to be back, and I appreciate Kyle so much filling in for me, and uh, heard his message this week, and did a great job, and so I'm appreciative of that, but um, I wanted to give the uh, total that we had raised, we had a 1.5 million next-gen Uh, campaign where we're trying to raise 1.5 million toward our building that's going to begin here in the month of june if all goes as well it should break ground here this month and so we are trying to raise 1.5 i want to give you the total today and our total grand total for the next for the faith promise giving is 1,970,000. dollars that's wonderful i am so excited about that and i want to thank you who have been a part of that and what you're doing to see our church move forward with our vision and for our future and even our next gen but even today and what we're doing today to accomplish the goals that Jesus Christ has for us today so thank you for that and thank you for being a part of that and I want to say I truly appreciate it and I'm honored I'm honored to be your pastor and so I want to make mention of that okay Luke chapter 22 stand with me now as we read God's word verse 14 When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You may be seated. I'm just going to jump right in today because I want to make sure I use my time properly and I don't want to get tied down into things, but look at this verse now. It says, when the hour had come, when the hour of his crucifixion was about him, before he did it, he had the Passover meal up in the upper room. We know this is the communion service because he shifts things from the, the uh, Passover, the Old Testament, the coming out of Exodus, to the New Testament and Jesus Christ going to a cross. So all the Old Testament was about is a picture looking forward to the time that Christ would go to a cross and he would die on the cross. That was his hour to come. And so it says he reclined at the table. Now, a lot of times you read that and reclined at the table and we get this picture in our mind of the Lord's Supper from Da Vinci's painting. And so if you see that painting there on the screen, that is not a picture of what they did at the Last Supper. That is not even close to how it went about. But a lot of times we have that in our mind of how it occurred. But it's more like this. And if you'll take a close look at this, I want you to remember this picture and I want you to keep it planted in your mind. This is how they would have gathered. There's 13 of them, 12 disciples in Jesus. So let's just keep it up there for a minute. Don't even go to my next slide when I say that word. And you got it. I know you remember it from last service. And so Uh, you look at that picture right there and they reclined they laid on their left hand they got down on the floor they brought their own mats they brought their own mats rolled them out and they laid on their hand and they would eat the supper down on a big mat which had all the passover elements that were going to be partake partaken of at this this is called in the hebrew the seder the passover meal and as they would recline you say why do they recline it's kind of weird they only did this when they did this passover meal one time a year They reclined because what Jesus did is he brought them out of Egypt, out of their bondage and slavery, and they were no longer slaves. And so it's a picture of resting. He wanted them to rest at one meal for an hour and a half with their left hand on their chin like this, and a little more on their side of their head like this. And so they would rest and they would eat. Now, you could look at that, and you could see, how do you talk to each other? Well, you literally can't get up from that position for the hour and a half. You actually um, just talk to the back of somebody's head, or they talk to the back looking behind them, and that's kind of how it practically worked in their culture. It's kind of a strange thing to us, but this is what they did one time a year. Now, when we think about where would Jesus sit in that picture, as you look at that picture, you'd ask yourself, where would Jesus sit? Now, in our culture, we would say he's probably at the head of the table in the middle, all right? But that's not where he sat, and I want you to understand that because it's totally different in our culture. He's not at the head of the table. Uh, It is more like this. Go to the next slide now. I think we can skip two slides and go. It's like this. That's Jesus over there. That's where he would have sat with the, the 12 disciples. Now, you can see where he is. He's in the second seat. Now, follow this opposite of the entrance of the doorway. So the doorway is on the other side of the table where they would come into this upper room and that's where is the most honored seat in any Passover meal. You probably didn't know that. That's why I'm going to teach you some things here this morning because Jesus would have been right there and then to the right and to the left would have been his most honored guest. The one at the right is the most honored. The one to the left is the next most honored. And then if you go all the way around the table to the end, the guy down in the bottom there who's closest to the door, he is called the foot washer. He is the one who washes everybody's feet. And so I want you to have these kind of firmly planted in your mind as I move forward here because it's very important you understand that. He's called the servant washer or the foot washer, as we would know him. Now, the question then is where did the disciples sit? Who got these seats? Now, immediately when they came into the upper room, the first thing they started to do among themselves is they started to argue among themselves who was the greatest. The reason they're arguing with themselves is because they're thinking, where am I going to sit? I want to sit at the right hand of Jesus, or I want to sit at the left hand of Jesus. And I certainly don't want to be the foot washer, just like you would think. All right? And so they're arguing among themselves who is the greatest and where should we sit? They know where Jesus is going to sit, but they don't know where they're going to sit. And so they get into this argument and think themselves, is the oldest to the youngest? Should it be the wisest to the learner? How should we set up this table? So when they come into the room, Jesus places them. Now watch this, okay, and stay with me here. John, the the apostle John is to the right of Jesus. He has the first place of honor at this Passover meal. Now how do you know this? If you study the Bible carefully and you know some of the background information on this, the reason you know it's John is because he leaned on Jesus' chest. He's the only one who could have done that at the Passover meal. So he's in the place of honor. Now, you don't remember this. You think Jesus, You think he's just kind of laying there intimately on his chest. He's not. The reason he laid on his chest, and a lot of people miss this when they study the Scriptures, is... He laid on his chest because Peter signaled over to John and said, John, find out who's going to betray Jesus because Jesus just said, one of the guys there at the table is going to betray me. So Peter motions to Jesus in John 13, verse 24, find out who that is because Peter's not in his right or his left. So he's motioning to John, find it out. And he leans back on his chest and he says, Lord, who's going to betray you? And so that's kind of the confirmation that actually it was John next to the right hand of Jesus. Now, who's to the left? Who's in the second seat of honor? We can figure this one out as well. It's Judas. It's Judas to the left, the second place of honor at this meal. How do you know this? Because when John asked Jesus, who's going to betray you? Jesus said, whoever dips the sop with me, he puts his bread into the bitter herb cup and eats it that one will betray me now everybody did that but what's interesting is that the custom behind this is that you only have three to a bitter herb cup like when you go to a mexican restaurant and you get salsa dip okay now most of you probably want your own but a lot of times you go over here to Don Juan's and they don't give you your own. They, they kind of show three at the table for six, seven people. And so you got to share with somebody, well, I don't want to be with a double dipper. And, and one thing I don't want to be with is my grandkids. I want my own cup when I'm with my grandkids. You can't believe the things that end up in a salsa <laughs> cup when you're at a Mexican restaurant. I don't mind my, my kids drink. And, you know, as long as nobody double dips, I'm all right. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. So there's three with Jesus. There's three with the next set, three with the next, three with the next, and three with the next. But in this case that means that it had to be John, Jesus, and Judas because only three dip out of that cup. John knows it's not him. And uh, Jesus goes over to the cup and he dips and he hands it to Judas. And so it's very interesting to just note these things about the text. The way I would just conclude here is it's just like Jesus to put his enemy at the place of honor. Now, I'm not going to camp here, but have you ever put anybody in your life, any enemy you have, at the place of honor? Have you ever honored any of your enemies? Jesus did. Jesus answers to them in this, and he says, This man will betray me, but I will honor him. It's amazing. Now, the third question is, I can't tell you where all the disciples are, but we can tell you where Peter is. Where's Peter in this lineup of these pictures, uh, which you saw earlier? Uh, Ray Vandelon, in his journal article suggests, and this is pretty good evidence, Peter is in the foot washer seat, the seat nobody wants to be in. He's in the foot washer seat. He's in the servant seat is what it was known as. He's the one when they all came in, should have been washing everybody's feet, but he didn't wash nobody's feet. You say, how do you know it's him? Because if you remember, in the middle of the meal, Jesus got up and took a basin and a towel and girded himself. He took his outer garment, tucked it in his belt, and then he got down on his knees and he began to go around person to person. He started with John, the person of honor. He went to Judas. Then he went right on down the line. You say, well, Peter couldn't have been in any of those positions. Here's the problem with that. If you read John 13 carefully, what you'll find is that when he gets down to Peter... And Peter says, Lord, you shouldn't be doing this to me. I should have done it to you because I'm the foot washer and I wash nobody's feet. And in the text, after that little discussion with Peter, Jesus says, as I have done to all of you, which means he's already washed everybody's feet, so do you. See, so it tells us that Peter was the foot washer there in the context. It's just excellent to reflect on this. Peter said, "I should wash your feet because I'm the servant's seat, but I'm not doing that." It's John thirteen six. Never, Lord, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, "If you won't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me." And then Jesus said, "Okay, do my head and my hands." What he's really saying there in Hebrew is, "I repent. I repent." Uh, Jesus said, you're already clean. I don't need to wash your whole body. I only need to do your feet. Now, a lot of times people take that to translate that as daily cleansing, and that could be part of the idea, but the real part is that Jesus is saying is, would you learn to be a servant? Would you learn to wash people's feet? That's the hardest thing we learn in life. Jesus said, the happiest you'll ever be. The happiest you'll ever be is when you're serving someone else. And some of you don't believe that. Some of you think if you just get money and get to travel and do all these things with your life and have a good income and a good family and, and you'll be happy. No. No, he says the closest you ever come to being happy in life is to be a servant. And you have to be convinced of the Holy Spirit of that. I can't convince you. But that's the closest you'll be to being happy in this life. And so he's saying, I'm going to go lay down my life. I'm going to serve you. That's what I want you to do. Okay, now this meal in the Old Testament is called the Passover or the Seder is the Hebrew word, the Seder, and there are four cups that you drink at a Seder. Jesus is going to take this tradition. He's going to totally change it in the New Testament. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. Okay, there are four cups to drink during the ceremony, and they're built on four promises to a Jewish person over the Passover in Egypt. They come from Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. Let me just say them to you, okay? The first one is, the first cup. I will bring, well, let me just start with the verse. I am the Lord. I will bring you out of the yoke of bondage from Egypt. That's the first cup. The second cup, and I will set you free from your enemies and you will see them no more. The third cup, and I will redeem you with outstretched arms and mighty acts of power. It's the third cup. The fourth cup, I will take you to myself to be my people and I will be your God. I am the Lord. Now that was four verbs there. I will bring you out, I will set you free. I will redeem you, and I will take you. That's their memory technique for the Passover. And in that memory technique, those four promises are the heart of the Passover celebration. So these four cups, Jesus would have at this meal, hopefully these will stand up here for me, Uh, the first cup, I will bring you out of the yoke of bondage. That's the cup of blessing. You're never going to see your enemies anymore. Oh, good, that's good. I don't want to see my enemies anymore. I'm going to bring you out of that, out of that bondage that's been on your life. I'm going to bring you away. Okay? The second cup, that was the cup of blessing. The second cup is the cup of freedom, the cup of freedom. And I will set you free. I will set you free. Not only will I bring you out, but what I will do is I will take away your slave nature. I will take away your slave nature. Not only are you not going to be a slave anymore, that's good, but even better than that, I'm going to take away that nature inside of you that is a slave to things. So for us, the idea is, I'm going to take away your slave nature of sin. So you take an addict who quits being an addict, He still has a desire to be an addict, even though he quit. God says, I'm going to take it totally away from you. I'm going to take your desire away for sin. Now, don't get caught up in that except to say, there is something inside of you that's clicking in you all the time. I hate this sin. My flesh still wants it. But I do, I do see my desire not as strong for this and that's the work of Christ in your life is is giving you that strength over that addiction whatever that may be I just use the word addiction but it can be anything that seems to want to be a bondage in your life okay and then the third cup the third cup after the meal begins with the dipping of the bitter herbs he says I will redeem you this is the cup of redemption I will save you and I will clean you up all right, And then the fourth cup, I will take you to myself, I will protect you. This is the cup of protection, the cup of protection, the fourth cup. Now remember those, okay? That was kind of quick, but. All right, now, let me go to the Luke 22 and show you this now, okay? Look in verse 15. Verse 15, it says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When he had taken a cup, which cup? There's four. He just mentions one randomly here because you would not have figured this out unless you knew the background. It's actually the fourth cup when he says that. How do you know? Watch this. He says, um, take this uh, when he had given when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God hasn't come. It's going to come one day in a future day where they sit down at the marriage supper of the lamb and they feast. But God says, I'm not going to drink of that cup right now. But he gives it to all of them. He gives it to all of them, says, now I'll eat the Passover, but I'm not going to drink this fourth cup. You don't know that from just reading in Luke 22 because you're in a Christian mindset of, of a new era. But back then, they would have known that this was the fourth cup. It was the cup of protection. And Jesus said, you drink it because you will be protected. But I'm not going to drink it because I'm going to a cross and I will not be protected. And I won't drink this again till I have an eternal protection and I will not drink it then. That's the fourth cup. You just don't know that from the language there, but I wanted to explain that to you, okay? Now watch this. Let's go a little further here. 19, uh, Jesus adds something to the whole program here. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body. This is totally new. This isn't in the Old Testament Seder, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. And in the same way, uh-oh, he took the cup, another cup. Which cup is that? And he took the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's the third cup. That's the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. And he's taking this third cup and he's saying for all those that put their faith in my body being broken on a cross and my blood being poured out for them, drink this cup. Drink this cup. You put your faith in me. You acted out your faith in your life. So drink this cup. That's, that's the institution of a new meaning to the Seder. And now it becomes our communion. Uh, the formal word is Eucharist. Just a Greek word for Eucharizo. You thankfulness, praise, blessing from God. Okay, And so this is this cup, this third cup of redemption. Now this third cup is probably the key to the whole thing uh and i'm trying to be careful what i go into here but this is a promise to us and he will keep it to us keep it for us but here's the deal this phrase this cup is the new covenant in my blood you need to understand the background of that i don't know if i've ever taught it to you so i want to teach it to you it's very important to understand it this cup is the new covenant in my blood When a young man came of age to be married, he was 15 to 17 years of age in that day. They got married much younger in that culture and became more responsible. There's no teenage years. You go right to life at 15 to 17 and you are married. And you have to have a responsible life from 15 onward. Okay, and so when he wanted to be married, the parents knew, and so mom and dad would get together and they would talk about the bride he had to marry. He had very little choice in the matter. I'm sure he probably had some, you know, like handed a few of the yearbook pictures and said, not her, but her, she'll be okay. You know, I could see that kind of conversation, but in their culture, it was mom and dad who picked out the bride and they would talk about it. Once mom and dad picked out the appropriate bride, the second thing that would happen is the father would meet with the father of that daughter that they picked out, the girl they picked out, to agree on a marriage between the two. If the father of the daughter agreed... Then the third thing that would happen is the young man and the father would meet with the other father and her, his daughter at the other father's house. At this meeting, they'd all sit together in the living room because there was only a living room. All right? And they'd all sit together in the living room and they'd negotiate the price of the daughter. It was called the bride price. The bride price meeting. Now, you need to understand this, okay? It's not that you're buying a thing when you think about buying a girl. That's not what's going on here. But it's as you would ask for a great deal of money for physical things in your life, like your chainsaw, your tractor, your car. You'd ask for great deals of money for some things that are really important to you in life. The loss of the daughter was the most valuable thing a father could lose. So the price of the daughter was better than anything else he had in his house because the daughter left him. The son, if he married, he stayed at home. And so he had to come up with a value for that daughter because she was a valuable possession to him. So they would sit and they would have this bride price meeting. Now, if you want to know so you get a good feel for this, the comparable price to today for what it would have cost to have a bride in that day was the price of buying a new home? I wish we would have that custom in our day today. When my daughter got married, I wish my son-in-law would have had to buy me a new home. I would have thought that'd been great. I, he didn't buy me a new home, and he didn't even pay for the wedding. Man, he got out scot-free. I'm glad I only had one daughter. I'm telling you that right now. That one was more. I could put all of my son's expenses on their weddings, and my daughter's outstrips them all because they're so expensive. But they're worth every dime. (laughs) They're worth every dime. And so anyways, that's really what's going on here. She was comparable to the price of buying a home. And the fourth thing that then happened is the price was finally agreed on and they set a date for the betrothal period, the engagement period as we would call it. Then what would happen is the father and the son would come back again to that house, meet with the father and the daughter in the living room again, And the father of the son would take a wine bottle and he would pour out a cup of wine. Now, why wine? Because you need grapes to make the wine. And in order for the wine to have its effect, the grapes have to be crushed. You're entering into a covenant of sacrifice and therefore there must be a great price paid by the son and the daughter or it'll never work. And so the father would fill the cup up. He would fill this, like this third cup up. And he would hand it to the son. And the son would take the cup to the young girl. And this cup, he would say to her, this cup I offer to you. And here's what he would say. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, he's saying to the girl, I love you, I give myself to you, I offer my life, I will die for you, and I will shed my blood for you if I must. And then to simply put it in our culture, will you marry me? The young girl decides at that point, she can say no, she can say no at that point and refuse his life and she just gives the cup back. But if she takes the cup and she lifts it up to her mouth and she drinks, what she's saying to him is I accept your life for me and I give you my life in response. She hands back the cup and then he drinks. And they both have drank of the cup. The fifth thing that happens is the dad and the son return home and for a one year betrothal period or engagement period, they prove their faithfulness to each other by not being involved with any other person again in a deep or close intimate relationship. And the son and dad return home and they build a home on dad's property and at the end of the betrothal period they have a wedding. In the third cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of salvation... At the end of the Passover, he is beginning a new covenant with his blood. He's using that exact phrase. When he pours the third cup into their cups around the room for the Passover celebration, he says to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In my blood. They knew what he was saying. They knew the custom. You may not have known the custom, but what he is saying is, I love you. I will die for you, and I will shed my blood for you. It is the most intimate, purest expression of love he used in the language of that day was between a husband and a wife. In other words, we'd put it in our culture, and we'd say, Christ is proposing to his disciples. He's proposing to them, and us. And he's saying to us, he's saying to them, Will you marry me? Will you marry me? That's the whole background behind this. Will you be my spiritual bride? Will you be my spiritual bride? They got the point. They would know what he was telling them. And they would know it. They would get it. Jesus is impassioned for us. He's willing to die for us. He loves us. Then if they agree... They must drink the cup. They must drink the cup. And every time you have a communion service, and every time you drink that cup, that's what you're saying. You're agreeing with Jesus. You're saying to Jesus again and again, I love you, and I recommit myself to you. I'll marry you all over again. So Jesus comes to you again through the symbol of ordinance. That's why we have this ordinance. not just something you do. You have this ordinance, and he says to you with this ordinance, every time you do it, I love you. And I did die for you. And I renew my commitment to you again. And will you renew your vow to me again? Will you drink the cup again? That's what this is. This is a renewal vow. It's a vow to say, it's you. It's you again. In 1990, I lived out in Denver, Colorado, and uh, I was going through a Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling under Larry Crabb and Dan Allender, probably my two greatest mentors in my life. And uh, I had gone through a tough time up in uh, Milwaukee, up in the Wisconsin area. Uh, through a ministry there, and so I just told my wife I'm getting out of the ministry. And so I moved out to study under them for two years uh, in that mini- uh, in that master's program at Colorado Christian University. And so while I studied under them, it was, I'm, I'm literally, I thought the ministry was tough, but that was probably the toughest time in my life, is because while I was out there, um, I had to go through individual counseling, I had to go through couple counseling with my wife, and I had to go through intensive group counseling. And so I had to do that for almost two years and then I had to study at the same time and learn counseling principles and procedures and all the things that go along with that so it was really a hard time in my life because it stirred up my marriage everything you'd like want to ignore in your marriage or everything you don't want to talk about or everything you just let go and you just build up resentment you don't deal with it they don't let you do that they don't let you do that they make you talk about it they make you face it and they and they are incredible in what they do out there and it just it literally was a stirring up of my life. I, I, the best way I know how to describe that experience for the last year and a half when I was out there was like being plowed up, being plowed up in my life. And that's exactly what I experienced. And so sometimes during that year and a half, I'd, I'd ask, I would wonder and I'd even ask my wife, do you still want to be married to me? And she would ask me, do you still want to be married to me? Because it was, it was an unnerving time. It was a very difficult time. Well, it was my birthday in October, and so uh, she wanted to take me out to eat and took me out to eat, gave me a gift, came home. We put the two kids to bed at that time, and, uh, and then she said, I want you to listen to this song, and so she played the song for me, and uh, some of you may know this song. It was written in 1986, and some of you won't know this song, but uh, it was very touching to me because it was, like a, it was like she was saying something to me in the vow after all the mess we had been through or been going through. The words went like this. Maybe you could finish the last line. So much I'd change in my life, but one thing I'd do the same. I'd I'd choose you again. Forrester sisters, 1986. I'd choose you again. Of all the men in the world, I'd choose you again. I like that line. I'd choose you again. If God gave me the chance to do it all again, I'd choose you again. Man, I cried. Of course, I cry pretty easy, don't I? But I cried. It it touched my heart at a very touchy time in our relationship. God is saying to every one of us, when we come to the communion, He is telling you he is telling you i would choose you again i would choose you again that's what he's telling every one of you who partakes in the communion that noam is lord and savior i choose you again that's what he's saying to you now what he wants to know from you when you drink the cup is would you choose me again would you choose me again That's every time we lift our cup and we put it to our lips, we're saying of all the things in the world, of all the people in the world, yes, God, I choose you again. And now on earth, we are in the betrothal period. He's watching us. He's looking at our faithfulness to him. Are we living that out? Are we living out the things he wants us to do? And we're proving our faithfulness to Jesus because he's gone home to prepare a place, John 14 said. He's doing just like the son did with the father. He went back to prepare a place. And he's going to come again and get us. And forever, forever we will be with the Lord. And that's why he says, that's why he says then in the text, this do in remembrance of me now you read that word remembrance and all you think is we're coming here so we don't forget that's not it that's not the word there's no greek word for that english word remember all right the english word remember like you remembered memorial day last week did you remember memorial day what did you do to remember well we you know we did a thing where we honored all the people in the military that's not the word in the greek there when it says, this do in remembrance of me, it, it's a word which means an intense focus so as to shape your life and person. That's a hugely different word than in our culture. In other words, you remember with the focus that it's going to change your life. Did it really change your life on Memorial Day when you thought about the men and women who died for you? You say, well, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm very appreciative and stuff, but, but it did change your life. Did it change your focus? See, that's, this word is stronger. This word means an intense focus that you change who you are as a person. That's what it means to remember me. Remember how you put the blood on the doorpost. That's what he's saying to them in the Passover. Remember how the angel passed by you and went over. Remember how I saved you and opened up the Red Sea. What he wants us to do is remember how I hung on a cross for you. And i do it Again. And I gave my blood all the way to my death. Now, is that changing you? Not just that you remember, don't forget. No, no, is it changing you? That's what he wants you to do. That's what he wants you to remember. Remember? I'm going to enter into the communion service at this time. I'm going to ask the deacons. They're going to go around and they're going to distribute the bread and the cup at this time. And as you prepare for this, I'm going to say a few more things here. But uh, as you prepare for this, let me make it very clear to you, this is a time to examine yourself. That you're saying to God, I choose you again. But you're also wanting a clear conscience as you come before God. And so he says, examine yourself, uh, whether there be anything in you, that would put a is there anything in you right now between you and God that that you know this shouldn't be there or someone else in here that you know it shouldn't be there there's something in your life it's just a moment just to examine yourself so as you're getting the bread and the cup i want you to be reflective of that that you would just clear your conscience right now you would just go before God and say god i know this is something i got to have right so he says don't take of it unworthily if you're saved you're welcome to take part of the lord's supper here but don't do it unworthily Make sure there's some things that are clean and clear before God right now. If that's a matter of confession or something that needs to be said, you take the time to do that even now because it's very important to uh, what we're about to do. I've received of the Lord that which I've also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. Some of you haven't gotten the bread yet and we'll wait just a moment, but he says, Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in so doing he is eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you are asleep in the Lord. In other words, some died prematurely because they were sleeping around and then going in and having the Lord's Supper. Or some were coming to the communion table and literally it was wine that was used in those days, 3% alcohol in the drink, and uh, they were getting drunk. And Paul said, some of you are gonna go to an early grave. Some of you are gonna get sick. He's not just talking about a cold. He's talking about like a terminal illness. That's why he says if you would judge yourself, God wouldn't have to judge you. That's why I want you to just take some time, if there's anything in your life, that you want to judge yourself over, so that he wouldn't have to judge you. So let's just take a moment to do that now that the bread and the cup's there. Let's just bow our heads, Father, search our hearts. mindful of this moment mindful of each one in this room that desires to say I would choose you again so I pray that your your hand would be over us that your glory would be made known and that you would be seen for all that you're worth Amen when you're giving thanks break it he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let it change your life. Let it change your life. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood will you marry me i love you i'd marry you all over again for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you just show the lord's death until he comes let's drink the cup last thing to remember, and we'll close. praise team will come and sing a song here. The cup I didn't talk about was the fifth cup. Because the fifth cup never happened in the Seder. The rabbis call it Elijah's cup waiting for his return. That's why he even says in the passage that you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right now we're proclaiming a crucified Savior that's risen. We proclaim that until He comes. And that's our job as His people. (laughs) But He didn't drink this fourth cup at the Seder or the Passover, the communion. He waited until He got out to the Garden of Gethsemane with His disciples. They all fell asleep. And there He realized something. The Bible says that this cup is the fifth cup, the fifth cup. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah spoke of it in Jeremiah chapter 25. It says, the Lord God Almighty, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my fury and give it to the nations to drink. This is the cup of God's damnation, the fifth cup. The cup of God's damnation. Pour out your wrath on the nations. They've scorned me and made me to drink vinegar. Pour out your wrath on them that don't know you. Psalms 11.6 calls this the cup of hell. The cup of hell that they'll be made to drink who will not believe in him. So Jesus comes to the garden. He begins to think about this fifth cup he's reflecting on Jeremiah maybe even Psalms 11 who knows but he begins to be in great turmoil and he has these sweat drops of blood you know what's in that cup it's a terrible thing it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God and while he's in the garden reflecting on this fifth cup The truth of the matter is he realizes what's going on in Jeremiah 25. He knows. I must drink this cup. No, no. Let this cup pass from me. No, no. Whatever you want. Whatever you want, Father, I'll do it. And he drank the fifth cup. He drank it all the way to the emptiness of the cup. Look, look, it's empty. It's empty. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He swallowed it down. It is finished. That's the last swallow. The last swallow of that cup of wrath, that cup of hell, that cup of condemnation. He drank it. He drank it for you and me. For you and me. He took our cup of fury upon himself he says to us I'd do it all over again for you I'd choose you again and the father had to look to the son and he said I'm sorry son there's no protection for you tonight there's no protection just protection for us who run to his shelter. Let's pray. Father, we we indeed thank you for this wonderful, wonderful ordinance. We hear you saying to us, I choose you again. And God, many of us here this morning lifted it up again and said, I'd choose you again. We renew our vow to you, Father. We love you. We seek your blessing. We seek your face. We seek your countenance. We seek your grace. We long for your peace. So God, this morning, as we celebrate you and all that you've done, may you have all the glory and honor. We lift it up now in the precious name of Jesus, the only name there's power.